Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's a real joy to be with you and to uh, open God's Word with you this morning. Let me encourage you to please open your Bibles at the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be looking at chapter 25, reading from verses 14 through to verses 30. Uh, this morning we're going to be spending our time, obviously, in one of the parables of Jesus. Uh, it's a parable that, at its essence, encourages us to faithfully improve that which has been entrusted to us. And I'll explain a bit about that, uh, what that means in, in a short while. At the same time as it's an encouragement, we also need to, when we're reading this, understand that there is a dire warning embedded in the midst of this parable. And it's a, it's a warning that ought to cause us to stop and to assess our lives. You know, are we, are we really truly walking with the Lord? Are we really loving Jesus Christ and loving our neighbor? Um, that's really at the, the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Well, before we read Matthew 25, I want to ask, because I wonder how many different kinds of waiting you can think of. Uh, for those of you with young children, uh, you'll know that uh, telling your son or your daughter, 10-year-old son or daughter, that it's only 10 minutes until dinner is probably not going to stop them from following you around like a shadow until you give them a snack uh, to allow that hunger that is killing them uh, to dissipate. And then, of course, there's the situation of waiting where if I'm in my study preparing for a teaching or a sermon or I'm busy trying to write something, when I get the notice that it's 10 minutes till supper, 10 minutes is just not long enough. And so there's this frenetic movement to try and finish and complete that which I've set out to do. One author said this. He said it's the same length of time that one is waiting in one way and another is waiting in another way. And of course, there's the kind of waiting that you enjoy when you meet the man or woman of your dreams. And you remember that moment where the, the time just seems to pass way too quickly. And in some sense, you wish you could freeze that moment in time. That it would simply be a magical moment that would continue forever and ever and ever. But of course, eventually you realize that that moment must pass by. But then, of course, there's the kind of waiting that's experienced when you're desperately ill. When you're waiting for the wretched effects of the next chemo treatment to simply pass you by. And it's almost as if you feel like Job taking shards of pottery and scraping the wounds from his skin, crying out, oh, long, how long, oh, Lord, how long. There are different kinds of waiting. And... In relation to our parable that we're going to be looking at this morning, within its context, the question that we're going to be considering is, what does God say regarding how we are to wait for Jesus Christ? How are we to wait for Jesus Christ? What posture are we to assume as we wait for His coming and when we will see Him face to face in glory? And so, without further ado, let me read the text, and then we'll commit this time to the Lord in prayer. So, Matthew chapter 25, reading from verses 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had received two talents made two talents more. 
But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two and he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talents in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our heads in praise. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. This is a, a very sobering parable. It's an encouraging parable, and yet, Lord, it also strikes each and every one of us to consider our lives before you. And so, Father, we pray in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would you sweep through each and every one of our lives this morning. Father, may we see and behold Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would work in such a way that our desire would be for Him and for Him alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the parable that is before us and that we're going to be looking at this morning it's obviously part of a much larger section. It's part of Matthew 24 and 25, uh, the Olivet Discourse, it's commonly referred to. And of course, just a few moments on from here, in fact, it's just going to be three days until the horrors of the cross take place. And so Jesus is gathered on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. There's probably a few other people who are listening in from a distance. And he's trying to press home very seriously with a sense of desperation that Things are about to speed up and things are about to take place. But even though I'm going to be going, there will come a time where I will return. And of course, as we see in the parable, there will be an account that is required. And so we must consider this parable within this larger framework. We cannot just isolate it and take it out of its context. One commentator said, stated this. He said that one speaks of the future judgment for the sake of the present. The reason for speaking about the future judgment is to get a hold of people's heads and hearts with regards to the present 
regarding their life before the great creator, and of course the, the account that will need to be given. And so Jesus here is pressing home the reality that a day is coming when he will return. We will see his lovely face, but we will give an account for our lives before him in that moment. There will be no more facades, no more agendas, no more ducking and diving, no pretending that things haven't happened, no sweeping things under the carpet. Everything will be laid bare in that moment. And so in chapter 24, let me just take you back a few, few verses. Jesus teaches us to wait. Remember the theme is that of waiting. How are we to wait? Well, in chapter 24, Jesus teaches us to wait for the Lord so as to not be surprised. In other words, to be expectant, live expectantly that Jesus Christ could return in the cloud of glory at any moment. And when he returns, we're told in Matthew 24 that it will be like the days of Noah. People will be getting married. They will be having funerals. There will be celebrations. There will be birthdays. The normal and regular events of life will be happening. And then, in a moment, one will be taken, one will be left. In a flash, everything will change. We wait for the bridegroom with expectation. And then in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, the text that is just prior to the one that we read, Jesus implores us to wait as if His return will be long delayed. In other words, we don't come to a saving knowledge of Christ today and expect Him to return tomorrow, as much as that would be glorious. But we need to expect and, and prepare ourselves for a marathon in the Christian race. It's not a 24-hour sprint. And so you are to be expectant of the bridegroom's return, but don't expect it immediately. In other words, prepare yourself, pace yourself, so you're preparing for the long, the long journey. And then in verses 31 to 46, the passage that is after the one that we read, we're told that we are to wait in the knowledge that there will be a separation of sheep and goats. There will be a, a separation of sheep from goats. Those who are in Christ will be separated from those who are not in Christ. And hence, perfect justice will be poured out at that moment. All of these, all of these parables are very sobering. But when we come to our verses for this morning, the passage highlights what we are called to do in the interim before there is that great separation. How are we to live out our lives this side of glory, calling ourselves part of the Christian community, part of the, the believing church? How are we to wait for the Lord as slaves who have been commissioned to improve their master's assets? How are we to wait for that? Now, notice that in each of those parables, and you'll need to go and read them when you go away from here, but in each of the parables, there is a decisive separation. Five virgins enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb. Five are locked out. Two of the slaves, the one that we're looking at this morning, two of the slaves are welcomed in, and one slave is banished. And then, of course, you've got the sheep who inherit the kingdom, and, of course, then you've got the goats who are banished to outer darkness. Now, when we take Jesus' statement, when we, took, when we really understand what he's saying here, we take it seriously, we need to understand that our generation is closer than the previous generation. In fact, we are closer to that moment when Jesus will return and ask for an account of our lives 
than we were last week, and we will be closer tomorrow than we are today. Time is moving linearly towards that culmination point. And, and that's why there's a sense in which every new day we need to be ready. And that ought to motivate the way that we actually live out our day-to-day -day activities in our lives. So what I want to do this morning is look at a couple of details in the parable itself, and then uh, I'd like us to take some time as we seek to apply that to our lives and to think about application. The parable is a story of a wealthy master. We read that in verse, from verse 14. Uh, he's going on a long journey, a journey that would take an undisclosed length of time, uh, but at some point when he deems it right, he will return. We're not told the length of this journey, no matter how many days, weeks, months, years this may take. And of course, it's meant to remind us of Jesus' statement himself, who said to the disciples and to others, no one knows the day or the hour of the return of the Son of Man. It is, in some sense, it's in the mystery of the wisdom of God himself. In other words, live your life faithfully from day to day, not knowing when that moment may take place. And so the Master, he calls his three servants together. In fact, that the word in the Greek there is doulos, and it's better translated as slaves. It's not just that we're servants, we're actually slaves. Uh, a couple of things on that. The first one is we mustn't impose our 21st understanding of slave onto a biblical understanding of slave, for one thing. A slave in our modern understanding is that there is complete and utter ownership and almost there's abuse that takes place. In a biblical understanding of slavery, we need to understand it from a Middle Eastern perspective, but the slaves were an extension of the name and the business activities of the master. So in other words, the master actually took care, careful care, of their slaves because he was entrusting his own property and his own name to them so that he would not be maligned or, of course, his assets just thrown to the wind. So please keep that in the back of your mind with regards to understanding slavery and the term slave. But part of the reason I also think that it ought to be translated as slave is because it, it connects us to the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament tells us and teaches us that we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ. Part of the notion of slavery is that we do not have any innate rights in and of ourselves. We abdicate that to our Lord and Savior as believers. And hence, we belong to Him. And so He gathers them, and He divides His wealth among them according to their unique gifting. There's no absolute, complete, unilateral equality in this parable, but it's according to their unique gifting. And so to the first slave, he gives five talents. To the second, two talents. And to the third, one talent. And he implores each of them to go and use that, is, with that which has been entrusted to them, to go and use it wisely and profitably. Please notice that there is no express numerical expectation with regards to the return on investment, so to speak. He does not say to them, I expect far more from the one who's getting the one than the one who's getting the five. That's not in the equation. He just wants them to be wise and profitable and faithful. Now, the word that we translate as talent probably also needs to be um, defined. Uh, you're probably familiar with the fact that a talent in biblical times is not the same as we understand talent to be today. It was, in biblical times, it was a monetary unit. Um, it's estimated by most commentators 
that one talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii, and that was the equivalent of 20 years of wages. So in other words, one of these slaves was receiving 100 years of wages, another was receiving 40 years and 20 years. This was an insurmountable amount of money for these slaves, for these servants. This was not something to be sniffed at, so to speak. It was something that was being passed on because the man trusted him. In our 21st century, we often associate the notion of a talent with someone who is talented. And so depending on whether you're good in sports or art or anything else, you're either deemed to be talented, less talented, or not talented at all, depending on what is transpiring. That is not what Jesus is getting at here at all. Jesus is trying to impress by insinuating that each is given a talent. Each is given a gift. Each is given a treasure. It's interesting that the songs that we were singing this morning and even a couple of the passages that we had read actually deal with the notion of gifts and talents and abilities. And each is responsible to faithfully steward that on behalf of their master. J.C. Ryle, some of you will be familiar with his writings, but he was an English pastor and theologian. He writes this. I think it's a helpful definition of a talent. He says, it is anything, it is anything whereby we may glorify God. Anything whereby we may glorify God. And so really, when, you, when you're reading this, this parable, we, we need to understand that it is Jesus imploring his disciples, imploring those throughout the generations it's about your life being lived faithfully as a servant, as a slave of the king. That's what it's about. It's not about the particular gift. It's about the gifting and the abilities of the totality of your life and how you're using that for the Savior and for the king. And so eventually the master goes his way, as we're told in the parable. And a while later he returns. And of course, it's a day of reckoning as we read from verses 19 onwards. Now, there's a couple of truths that I want to draw out that pertain to our lives and, of course, uh, to life as a whole. So it's about life and about ourselves. First one is this. Brothers and sisters, you're not your own. You're not your own. One of the themes that runs right through this parable, and it's woven into the very fabric of the parable, is the fact of the theme of ownership. The theme of ownership. These men belonged to their master. And he's the one who took care of them. They had no innate rights in and of themselves. And on top of being owned by their master, there is nothing that they held onto that was theirs entrusted to them that actually belonged to them themselves. So in other words, they themselves and everything about them in their life did not belong to them. They were simply stewards of all that had been given to them, including this vast sum of precious metal, this gold, silver, or gold, as he was distributing the talent. Not one cent belonged to them as individuals. And we've all heard the saying that when you breathe your last breath here on earth, you take nothing with us, with you. All right, you've all heard that. But I think there's a sense, even within the Christian community, that we can so easily 
get wrapped up into the world's way of thinking that it is about the accumulation of things this side of glory and using it as a means to show off to a watching world. It's so easy to be ensnared and taken into that way of thinking with regard to making this our home and therefore making it comfortable. And I think that there's a parable like this which is meant to fly in the face of that. This is a fact of life for each and every one of us. There is nothing that we take from here. It is only that which has been done for Christ and His glory, which we will give an account for. The whole of of Scripture actually impresses this truth upon us. You just think of the doctrine of creation. It was prayed this morning. We did not create ourselves, but we have a creator who actually gave us life. What about the doctrine of providence? Every day, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, we're told in the Psalms. God gives us breath. He enables this complex frame to function and to work in this environment. And he alone is the one that, as an act of kindness and grace and mercy and love, he's the one that continues to sustain us. The reason that you are still alive today is because of God's good pleasure. What about the doctrine of salvation? The doctrine of salvation itself teaches us that you are not your own. That when Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to see what he accomplished on Calvary, that he took our place where we were, we should have been damned. But he took our place. It's a reminder to us that we need to relinquish our entire being in the service of him. Friends, the question that I want to ask you at this point is, have you and I, have we truly embraced the fact that God owns us? That He owns us? It's His life. It's His strength. It's His gifts. It's His money. It's His belongings. It's all entrusted to us. So that we would worship Him in spirit and in truth, give thanks and praise to Him, but also use it for the extension of the kingdom. Secondly, so firstly, you are not your own. Secondly, you are responsible. You are responsible. If the talents are his and that they are from him, they are to be used for him. Uh, The the text that immediately comes to mind is obviously 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. Now, I do want you to think with me for a little moment as to a possibility that could have been brought out as a scenario in this parable. It was quite possible that Jesus could have included in the story that he had distributed his wealth to the, 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 the various slaves or servants. And in doing so, as he went on his journey, that one of those slaves actually turned around and ran with that which had been entrusted to him and given to him. You know, friends, how many of us, unthinkingly sometimes, perhaps, have taken and we've used God's good gifts and we've used it for our own ends. Whether it be pride, whether it be for power, or whatever else maybe the sin that we're struggling with. John Noland, he's a, a commentator on the book of Matthew and, and Luke. He writes this, he says, In this parable, Jesus is addressing a certain kind of nominalism 
among his contemporaries. Those people who are quite happy to be in the general way within the orbit of the people of God, but they are unwilling to make themselves answerable to God's expectations in any committed sense. What is he getting at? You know, being around a group of Christians is actually quite nice. Christians, for the most part, are kind and gentle and, and peace-loving and loving and, and gracious. It's better than what the world has to offer. But being a part of the community of faith doesn't mean that you're actually part of the saving community of faith. You know, all you need to do is look at Judas Iscariot. I think that he's the prime example here. He walks with the Savior for three years. He assimilates into the group of the disciples. He seems to have the language and the terminology that allows him to be able to speak Christianly. But of course the idol of his heart and the true reflection of what was going on in the inner recesses really shows itself where he sells the Messiah out for 30 pieces of silver at the end. Wasted years. Wasted time. You know, I remember a situation in South Africa. Um, I just moved to Pretoria uh, to take on the pastorate there. And uh, I remember one of the congregation members coming to me and, and saying, um, I was converted at a very young age. I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. I loved him. I loved the church. And it was just a beautiful season of my life. But then something happened between the leadership and myself and a few others. And as a result, I started to drift away from the life of the church. And as I drifted away, I actually found myself over time taking on and doing things more for myself and for my own name than I did for the love of the Savior. Anyway, he walked away from the church for a number of years. Anyway, in, God, in God's kind providence, he tells the story of how the Holy Spirit recaptured his heart and brought him back. And this was his comment. He said, if only I had not wasted so much time and wasted the allotment of gifts that had been entrusted to me. Now, what was he saying? It's not to say that he, wasn't, he, he, that he, he hadn't done anything with his life. From a business sense, from a worldly sense, he, he was a successful businessman. But he understood that the gifts that had been entrusted to him when he came and had his eyes open to Jesus Christ, they had been buried. Brothers and sisters, how seriously do we take the responsibility for the gifts that have been entrusted to us? Are you developing those gifts and are you using them here in the local body? One author wrote this, he said, it's a universal tendency of Western society to trivialize the serious issues of life and to solemnize the trivial. To trivialize the serious issues of life and to solemnize the trivial. It reminds me of William Carey who said, I'm not afraid of failing. I'm actually afraid of succeeding at the things that don't matter in eternity. So, you are not your own. You are responsible. And then thirdly, you have been uniquely entrusted. You've been uniquely entrusted. The passage tells us that the master entrusted the talents according to each one's own ability. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, it's not that you, you have to question whether you have a talent or not. You have a talent. You have a gift. Now go and use it. But there's two things that we need to just be careful of. We are to be careful not to overestimate the talents that we've been receiving. 
If you have this notion that you want to be the next John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther, that's probably not what God has in store. But at the same time, you're also not to underestimate the gifts that have been entrusted to you. Where you get to the point where you're questioning, what can I possibly offer in the life of the body here? Each aspect of the body is critical for the beauty of the glory of Christ to be on display to a watching world. Use that which has been entrusted to you. Ask the Lord to develop those, those, those gifts that have been entrusted to you. God has made you perfectly, and He's gifted you perfectly as well. And so in the eyes of the Master, as we come back to this parable, this third servant was of equal value as the others. And if he had been faithful in the stewardship of that which had been entrusted to him, he too would have received those words, or heard those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And the question is, what happened to the third servant? Had he become resentful of those who received more than he did? Had he forgotten what his master was truly like? That seems to be part of the narrative if we read verses 24 and verses 25. Had he taken his eyes off the fact that he was an image bearer of God and therefore precious and treasured in his son? To the young people that are here, God has you at this appointed time in your life here in Clinton, in Mississippi, you are here, and you're in the community here at Emmanuel. He has perfectly gifted you, perfectly created you, so that you may be the ambassador of Christ in the school or the various environments in which you move and circulate, so that the honor and the glory goes to Him. Don't think that because you are young in years that you have no significance and value to contribute to the kingdom of God and the advancement thereof. Let that sink in. Let those gifts be nurtured and develop them for Christ's sake. And then, of course, to those of you who are in your older years. You know, sometimes I've, I've met a number of people in their older years who question, what is it that I can possibly offer the church at my years? One of the things I would say to you is, again, God in His wise providence has allowed you to have the years that you have had. He's gifted you with all that you still have. And He's given you the wisdom of a life that has been lived to see the faithfulness of God. And that testimony must be passed on to the younger generation to be an encouragement as they are looking to and being pointed to the great King and Savior, the Messiah Jesus. I'm not going to deal with the ones in between the young and the old. You can sort that out for yourselves. It's interesting when we look at this parable that Jesus tells us that the third servant was wicked and slothful. He was wicked because of his perception, his false perception of who he understood his master to be. And he was slothful, not untalented, he was lazy with regards to the use of the gifts. It's interesting because the other two servants didn't see their master the way the third servant did. They understood him to be a very gracious and a very encouraging and rewarding master. And hence the words that were ultimately spoken, come share your master's happiness. And so the question that even now that needs to be asked of each and every one of us is, do we truly have an understanding, a, a right understanding, of who our Father in Heaven is, who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is as well? 
And then finally, this is the, the closing point. So you are not your own. You are responsible. You have been uniquely entrusted. And the fourth one is this. You are accountable. You are accountable. We see that in verses 19. After a long time, the master returned to settle accounts. Friends, there is a day of reckoning. There is a day when each of us will stand before our creator, before our owner, before our master, and we will be asked to give an account for our lives. Please do not think for a moment that we can escape that moment or that you can bypass it somehow. The fact that you're here even this morning is God's reminder to you that that day lies ahead for you and for me. Now, notice that the judgment that is spoken of from verses 19 through to verses 30 is on the basis of faithfulness to the Master. It's on the basis of faithfulness to the Master. And there are only two groups. There are the faithful and there's the wicked and slothful. Ultimately, those who knew their Master, who genuinely knew their Master, are the ones who devoted their lives to the Master. The faithful celebrated the joy of the Master as they were welcomed into the table. And once again, it's a picture of that we are all equal around the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The wicked and slothful, they were cast into darkness, away from the Master, to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, it's the Bible's picture of hell and the punishment and the justice of God towards sin. Let me close with this. Because I think that John Piper, if he was preaching on this parable, he would probably apply his now famous statement, don't waste your life. C.T. Studd was a, a cricketer, a famous cricketer in the early 1900s. He became a missionary. He also has another well-known statement whereby he said, there is only one life that will soon be passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. There are two people in the scriptures with the same name. It's a testimony as they come to the end of their lives, they inscribe something as a reflection of their walk with the Lord. The first Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, writes this, I have kept the faith, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. The other Saul was a king of Israel, and on reflection on his life, he writes this, I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. And I guess my prayer this morning for each and every one of us is that as much as this is an encouraging parable to press on and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, it would also be a parable that causes us to stop and not just assume everything, but it would drive a deep desire to know the living God more and more so we may serve Him and be faithful stewards and count it as that at the end of our days. Let's pray, Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for parables like this, hard parables. The parables that Jesus himself taught those of his disciples, knowing full well that within a very short space of time, one of them was going to actually abandon the group. Father, I pray for each of the men, women, boys and girls here, at Emmanuel. Pray for myself. Lord, I pray that we would not be deluded to think that we belong to you, where in actual fact our life has not been changed. 
And Father, when our lives aren't changed, we pray, Lord, that we would mark out each day, committing each day to the service of You. That our days would count for the extension of the kingdom and for the glory of Christ. So that His name may be put on display to a watching world. And we pray this and we ask these things as we come to the table in Jesus' name. Amen.